today at Reader's Corner, Brendan Ballou, author of the new book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Private equity surrounds us. Firms like Blackstone, Carlyle, KKR are among the largest employers in America and hold assets that rival those of small countries. Yet few understand what these firms are or how they work. In his new book, Plunder, Brendan Ballou illustrates how private equity firms have reshaped American business by raising prices, reducing quality, cutting jobs, and shifting resources from productive to unproductive parts of the economy. Forced to take on huge debts and pay extractive fees, companies purchased by private equity firms are often left bankrupt or shells of their former selves, with consequences to communities that long depended on them. Although private equity often has the support of various branches of government, Brendan Ballou believes private equity can be stopped from wreaking havoc. He is a federal prosecutor and served as special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. He also served in the National Security Division of the Justice Department, where he advised the White House on counterterrorism and other policies. Brendan Ballou, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Brendan, as I was telling you uh, off uh, mic, so to speak, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I hope our listeners have a chance to get a copy of it and read it. It's absolutely imperative if we care at all about the American economy these days. Uh, but speaking of the American economy, let's let's start with the basics of Finance 101. What is a private equity firm? How does it differ from other forms of financial investments? Uh, how is their business model different? And finally, since we're taping this show here in Boise, Idaho, where there were Shopco stores, perhaps you can even give our listeners an idea of just how private equity did in Shopco, the store? Well, these are great questions, and I'm so glad you asked them. And I should say, of course, that I'm speaking in a purely personal capacity and not on behalf of the government here. So why don't we start with your first question, which is, what is private equity? Um, it's a really great question, and one I confess I didn't know the answer to until I you know, was a few months into this research project. The basic business model of private equity is very simple. Private equity firms take a little bit of their own money, uh, some bar, some investor money, and a lot of borrowed money to buy up businesses. Uh, they then try to make financial or operational changes with the aim of flipping the business for a profit a few years later. That is a very simple business model, but it often leads to bad consequences for uh, three basic reasons, and I'm sure we'll talk more about these. One is that private equity firms tend to hold the businesses they buy just for a few years. And how long you hold something changes your perspective on it. I always say, you know, if I was trying to improve the value of my apartment over 20 years, I'd redo the kitchen. If I was trying to improve the value over two weeks, I'd burn it down and collect the insurance money. You know, it's the same sort of thinking with private equity. So that's the first problem. The second is that private equity firms tend to load up the companies they buy with a lot of debt uh, and extract a lot of fees. Um, so when a private equity firm buys a business, one of the sort of magic tricks here is that it's the business that's responsible for paying down the debt of the acquisition, not the private equity firm. And then the final issue is that 
private equity firms are really good at insulating themselves from liability for the consequences of their and their company's actions. So if something goes wrong at a portfolio company, um, private equity firms generally can't be held responsible or aren't held responsible. And so you combine all those problems, sort of short-term thinking, a lot of debt and fees, and insulation from liability, you've got a situation where private equity firms really capture all of the upside when things go well, but can essentially walk away when they don't. And you mentioned Shopco, uh, which is a store that I loved. I grew up in Minnesota. Listeners in Boise probably know this. You know, it's kind of it was kind of like one step above Walmart, one step below Target. It was absolutely <laughs> perfect for what you needed. That's right. Um, yeah. So I believe in 2007, um, Sun Capital, uh, which is a private equity firm, bought up Shopco, and it executed a lot of fairly familiar tactics to observers of private equity. For instance, it required Shopco to sell uh, the real estate of its stores and then lease it back to itself. So it generated a quick hit of cash. But what that meant is now Shopco had to pay for something every month that it used to own. Um, it had layoffs, ultimately forced the company into bankruptcy. Um, and I believe uh, Shopco is barely hanging on to existence if it is at all. Um, so that's an area where the private equity firm was able to extract a lot of money through things that are called transaction fees and management fees. Uh, but the consequences for the business itself was pretty disastrous. You mentioned portfolio companies just uh, for the sake of our listeners. I want to make sure that that is an example. Shopco is an example of a portfolio company, any company that that uh, a private equity firm moves in to buy. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about you mentioned investor money that uh, they obviously if, if, a, if a private equity firm is going to buy something, they they have to find the dollars. And one of the ways they get those dollars or public pension funds uh, significantly. As a matter of fact, the Americans for Financial Reform claim that public pensions funds comprise 31% of all private equity funds. They contribute 67% of their capital. Uh, let's see, in 2021, uh, I think they were, uh, they represented uh, 11% of the pension portfolio. Private equity did. Now it's up to 13%. Uh, what's what's the problem here? I mean, there's an irony in all of this when it comes to these pension funds and what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. So, um, you know, this all really goes back to the 70s when there were some reinterpretations, I believe, by the Carter administration of what's called ERISA, which manages retirement funds and pension funds. And it essentially allowed pension funds to start investing in riskier assets. Um, and this included the nascent uh, industry that was called leveraged buyouts, what eventually was renamed private equity. And there's really been a long connection between pension funds and private equity firms. Um, pension funds, as you say, you know, when we're talking about teacher funds, firefighter funds, police funds, um, have been investing in private equity for a long time. Yet, ironically, you know, private equity firms often engage in union busting or anti-labor tactics that really undermine the very workers that pension funds are trying to support. The really interesting thing here is 
despite all the sort of ethical concerns or sort of practical concerns about pension funds investing in private equity, the real surprising thing is it might not even be that great of an investment. Uh, there's a growing body of literature out there saying that, in fact, investing in private equity might not actually be better than investing in the ordinary stock market. Um, these acquisitions that we were talking about often work extremely well for the private equity firms specifically, but may or may not work well for the investors that are along for the ride, these sorts of pension funds. So it's an interesting area because you would think that this would be a great deal for pension funds, and yet it might not be. I want to talk about some of the specific companies and practices uh, that uh, private equity firms have been involved with. But before I do that, I want to give you an opportunity to make a comment uh, about those private equity firms that are doing it right. Uh, you use uh, Blue Wolf as an example. And while you give credit to Blue Wolf, you also point out that the underlying business model itself makes it really difficult for too many of these guys to be good guys. I'm probably yeah, you taking know, the words out of your mouth, but you can say it better <laughs> than I can. <laughs> no, no, I think that's I think that's fair. I've always said, you know, a lot of the criticism or praise of the private equity industry focuses on the people in it, you know, to the opponents of private equity. Uh, these are sort of cartoon villains for supporters of private equity. They're masters of the universe. And I always try to say, you know, it's really not about the people in the industry. It's about the legal structures and the incentives that we've created. Um, I've talked to private equity folks. You know, I think they're by and large, very friendly, very nice, take their kids to soccer practice and all of that. Um, but we've got a legal structure that incentivizes short-term risky thinking. And that goes back to the three problems that we were just talking about, you know, short-term thinking, debt and fees, insulation from liability. And so there are examples of private equity firms that I think by and large are trying to do it right. You know, you mentioned Blue Wolf Capital, which I think single-handedly was able to revive a timber mill in Arkansas, really helped to revive a town, um, really was trying to invest for the long term and do right by the community and by workers. Uh, and so I think that there's certainly a place for that. But ultimately, if we're going to make private equity a productive part of our economy, um, we have to change the legal incentives that drive such bad outcomes. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Brendan Ballou, author of the new book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. Well, let's move right on then to some of the examples you give in your, in your book. I, I know we won't have time to cover all of them, and I strongly urge our listeners to get out and get a copy of this. It's, uh, it's just so well done. Um, I remember when I was young, uh, I signed a contract once, a rent-to-buy contract. And it was a very generous landlord who decided uh, he wanted me to uh, have a stake in the in the land in the in the house that I was renting. And rent to buy is is pretty common, uh, but uh, I must say it almost sounds like a joke. But when you get to discussing private equity and home ownership, you refer to owners buying to rent. Uh, and again, I'll let you explain that, but that just doesn't make any sense these days or any days. Yeah. So this really goes back to the Great Recession. Um, 
in 2008, we had, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who were underwater on their mortgages, meaning that they owed more than the house was worth. Um, in a situation like that, what would have made economic sense for everybody would be to lower the principal on people's houses or to freeze mortgage payments. Um, you know, and that wouldn't just be a good thing for the people living in the houses. It would be good for the banks that had those mortgages because it would prevent waves of foreclosures and um, sort of whole neighborhoods from losing vet property values. The institutions that would have been able to do this were Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which collectively had an interest in, I think, more than 40% of all mortgages in the United States. But its regulator, uh, what's called the FHFA, adamantly refused to even consider principal reduction, even temporarily. Uh, and so thousands of people were uh, being foreclosed upon, having their houses foreclosed upon, having to leave their homes. But at the same time that the FHFA was refusing to consider principal reduction and help homeowners, it was working hard to help private equity firms. And specifically what it did is it started selling foreclosed homes in large tracts that only significant investors, not individuals and families, could buy. And so what you've got is a situation now where really whole neighborhoods are owned by private equity firms and institutional investors. And many of the same people are living in these neighborhoods. But to go back to your question, something fundamental has changed, which is these people no longer own these homes. Uh, they're instead renting them. And that is really changing the nature of home ownership in America. Um, home ownership is down significantly, not just from the 2000s, but I believe the 1990s. At least one commentator says that home ownership for African American families is back down to where it was uh, during the civil rights movement. And you can say in large part that is due uh, to what private equity was able to accomplish in the housing industry after the Great Recession. Related to home ownership would be mobile homes. And one of the things you point out in your book is that uh, private equity firms seem to use as targets the poor people who get victimized in these circumstances, the most vulnerable, as you call them. What happened to the mobile home business? Yeah, this was something that really surprised me in researching this project. Um I always sort of thought private equity firms would target businesses that service rich people, because if you're in the business of money, making money, you'd go where the money is. But instead, I found that private equity firms often targeted um, working class and poor people. And the reason I think that is, is because these consumers have fewer options. And so you can raise prices or cut costs in a way that consumers really don't have an alternative and can't go somewhere else. So mobile homes is a really good example of that. Private equity firms got really interested in mobile home properties, bought up um, the lots or the mobile home parks that these sit on, and often raised rent prices significantly. Now, this is a little in the weeds about how mo the mobile home business works, but I think it's important. When people own a mobile home, they tend to own the physical structure, but they tend not to own the land underneath it. Instead, they pay what's called the lot rent every month. It's like paying a, paying a mortgage. What happened was, was when private equity firms bought up these mobile home parks, they raised the lot rent. So each person was having to pay 
more each month. But because of that increase in monthly amounts, the actual value of the home that they owned also decreased. And so what you had is a situation where private equity firms were not just taking more from people every month, you know, taking their income, they were also reducing the value of their homes. In other words, taking their wealth. Um, it was sort of an economic pincer move for a lot of these working class families. I want to use one other example of the most vulnerable. Uh, you claim that payday and installment lending is an ideal industry for private equity. Uh, wh- why and how? And I think what you can do here is address this so-called small print agreement that too many of us are forced to sign at various times uh, when we consume, when we buy something. Yeah, it's a great example and a great question. So um, payday lenders, as you can imagine, um, service communities that are working class or poor, offering loans um, at extremely high interest rates. Uh, Warburg Pincus ultimately bought uh, an installment lender called uh, Mariner Finance, which their business model was to actually just send people checks uh, in the mail. And by endorsing the check, you agreed to sort of small print terms and conditions that required you to pay back the money at a high interest. Um, I did some research on at least one resident who had to do this. Um, She worked in a then working class neighborhood in Baltimore. Her boiler broke and she needed money quickly, ultimately endorsed the check. She tried to sue Mariner Finance uh, for alleged violations, I believe, of lending requirements. But when she did, Mariner was able to compel her case into private arbitration, um, which is often an area where consumers and employees really struggle to get justice. But the complication here is it was sort of a um, heads I win, tails you lose situation. Because if this borrower sued Mariner, the payday lender, uh, she had to go to arbitration. But if Mariner wanted to sue the borrower, they could use the state and federal court system. And that was just a part of the terms and conditions that she was forced to sign. And so you've got a situation where you have extremely sophisticated companies able to use the legal system to the best of their advantage um, while sort of consigning their consumers into the arbitration process. Yeah, there's probably a whole book that could be written on the arbitration process, how it's grown over recent years and taken advantage of people, again, that are forced to sign that small print they pay little attention to. I couldn't uh, agree more. Yeah. But let's talk about how, how private equity firms have entered the, the healthcare market. First of all, you can uh, share with our listeners uh, the roll-up strategies they use. And then how come this doesn't uh, encourage the antitrust enforcers to do something? Yeah. So I'll just describe what a roll-up is, because you referenced it. So Mm -hmm. this is a business model where a private equity firm or other buyer will buy up um, similar businesses and combine them under one roof. So you might buy up many dermatology practices or many veterinary clinics and then put them under one umbrella. And there are theoretical efficiencies that might happen to that. You know, you can uh, rely on, you know, bulk purchases, maybe use common IT and infrastructure services uh, to help lower costs. But it's also potentially a way, once you have market power, if you, for instance, buy up all the veterinary clinics in a certain geography or all the dermatology clinics in a neighborhood, 
you can potentially raise prices, cut pay, or cut, you know, lower the quality of service. That's a classic sort of antitrust problem. Uh, private equity firms have um, been engaged in this sort of roll-up tactic across many industries. You know, healthcare, as you mentioned, being one of the most prominent, for instance, buying up, I mentioned dermatology practices, that was an ex- a specific one, uh, but ophthalmology, radiology, essentially name whatever kind of practice in private equity is getting involved in it. To stick with the dermatology example, there was really interesting reporting by Bloomberg a few years ago talking about what were the consequences of these acquisitions. And um, what they found was that the private equity-owned businesses were cutting uh, spending on supplies, for instance, allegedly requiring doctors to meet certain quotas and pushing them to recommend services that may or may not have been strictly necessary. Uh, In one case, allegedly, they started using cheaper suppliers for needles that were so inferior that they would actually break off in people's arms, which I know nobody wants. Um, So a roll-up by itself is not necessarily illegal. Uh, but in its extreme form, can violate the antitrust laws. Today, I'm speaking with Brendan Ballou, author of the new book, Plunder. The book offers a powerful expose on the private equity industry, what it is, how it harms businesses and jobs, how the government helps, and how it can be reined in. Now, if an antitrust enforcer is to do something about this, uh, well, first of all, there's the Federal Trade Commission and there's the Department of Justice. And I think if I understand it correctly, they work hand in glove on an antitrust case, but eventually it's probably going to wind up in a federal court. If I remember correctly, you you address this issue of what happens when it gets to the federal court and whether or not our courts are equipped today to deal with the economics of antitrust. Of course. And here I need to be a little circumspect because it can touch on parts <laughs> of my parts of my job, but I, it's a fair question. So I, I think what you're getting at is, you know, we have these antitrust laws on the books, but for the past 40, even 50 years, there has been a sustained movement to really hobble our interpretations of the antitrust laws and really narrow their scope. This really began with uh, Robert Bork uh, in the 1970s writing the antitrust paradox, but you essentially have training programs sponsored by corporations to educate judges on a fairly conservative mindset on antitrust enforcement. Um, I shouldn't even say conservative, I should say narrow uh, vision of antitrust enforcement. Um, so what we've got now is a lot of judges have been trained to be fairly skeptical of, of the antitrust laws. I will say I think that that has been changing in the past few years as antitrust around any number of industries has grown more prominent. I think that there's an increasing understanding, uh, both by lawyers and by the general public, about how important our antitrust laws are. Well, let's flip over to another branch of government. Uh, You call Congress private equity's strongest advocate. And on this one, I'm not even so sure I know where to start on what has to be one of the more disgusting aspects of representative government. Uh, About how much money does private equity spend on lobbying Congress to keep things just the way they are? Since the 1990s, I believe private equity and other investment firms have spent north of $900 million uh, on federal elected officials and candidates. So it's a really extraordinary amount of money. Yeah. Um, 
I, and if I can just add to that, you know, yeah. I think even more important than the money, uh, as you can imagine, as a former elected official yourself, is the people that private equity employs. Private equity firms have employed former secretaries of Treasury, State Defense, uh, two former speakers of the House, uh, any number of senators and Congress people, chair people of the FCC and SEC, uh, generals, the CIA director. It's a really deep bench of folks that are now advocating on private equity's behalf. And I think that has been enormously beneficial to the industry, which has just been terrifically successful in getting its agenda across uh, in Congress and throughout government. And in that sense, I might add that this is a very bipartisan group of people that you refer to in the in the first few pages of your book. We're not talking about just Republicans. We're not talking about just Democrats. They're from both sides of the aisle, as they say, in Congress. Um, and I want to cover one one thing about this this congressional problem, the, the carried interest loophole. Uh, we don't really have to go into the details of what that's all about. We can just we can just say uh, for sake of simplicity, this is what allows private equity partners to avoid taxes that ordinary Americans must pay. I, I want you to share with us what happens in the in the Congress. And let's use a very specific example. Senator Susan Collins. Tell us about her so-called trip through the private equity issue, where she starts and where she winds up. Yeah, you know, Senator Collins proposed an amendment to um, pay for, I believe, a child care program, I believe in part by closing the carried interest loophole um, or, you know, another tax benefit that would um, uh, that typically benefits the private equity industry. Uh, That proposal was quickly withdrawn and she seems to have become a rather staunch defender of the industry um, and has received significant contributions from private equity generally. I will say though, I, I would I am hesitant to sort of um, focus on one elected official for exactly the reason that you um, said at the outset here, which is that this is really a bipartisan issue. I'll say, you know, when we're talking about the carried interest loophole, um, this is something that not just President Obama and President Biden tried to end, but also President Trump. Um, and all three have been unsuccessful in eliminating the carried interest loophole, largely because of the power of the private equity industry on this. Yeah. And, and you don't have to say this, Brendan, but, but I will say that there are at least four or five examples in your book where you point to a reform that was instituted during, let's say, the Obama administration, but then it was removed by the Trump administration. But as you say, in this one case of carried interest loophole, President Trump was there right along with the rest of the Democrats and Republicans in saying, we got to get rid of it. But of course, uh, that hasn't happened uh, to date. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Uh, We have time for one more example that I think really shows how maybe I shouldn't use the word clever private equity firms are, but how they can target some service that clearly is not going to have many people yelling and screaming about it, or at least people who have any ability to yell and scream about it. I'm talking about prison services. You give us an example of the various services 
in the prison business that have been taken over by private equity. Yeah, very briefly, this is an industry that private equity has been really drawn to, I think, for exactly the reasons that we were talking about earlier, which is um, these are folks who really don't have any bargaining power. I mean, they are a literally captive audience. Um, And so private equity firms have gotten involved in uh, prison phone calls where it could cost $15 or more for a 15-minute call to your family, prison health care where some situations were so dire that a female inmate had to give birth by herself in a cell uh, because of an understaffed facility, um, to prison food services where multiple people have alleged that private equity-owned suppliers have served boxes of meat that are literally labeled not fit for human consumption. Um, there's really some boundary pushing that's going on. For instance, private equity firms getting into the privatization of the prison library services where people can read ebooks, but they are charged by the minute for doing so. So I think it's one area where private equity has been particularly attracted. But I'll also say that it's an area where there's been really inspiring and important work done. And perhaps this is a way to give some optimism to your listeners in that advocates have been able to pass local, state, and eventually national legislation to help cap the cost of prison phone calls, um, which is a part that really attracts private equity. And they've done it, you know, small groups of people that are really passionate about this for long periods of time have been able to affect, you know, not just local, but national change. And so that happened in one industry, and I'm hopeful that it can happen in others. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of reforms, you do an excellent job as you conclude your book with a chapter on an agenda for reform, and and it is uh, quite detailed. We're just about out of time, but let's let's have as your as your closing answer, if you could give us your best estimate of the highest priority reform that you think we could use when it comes to protecting the victims of private equity firms. Yep. Very briefly, it goes back to the three problems we talked about earlier. You know, mm-hmm. private equity firms thinking short-term, loading companies up with debt and fees, and insulating themselves from liability. Legislation or regulation at the federal level could help address this, but so too could actions at the state or even local level to protect businesses in your jurisdiction. So there's a lot that should be done, and there's a lot that can be done here. All that's necessary is the sort of enthusiasm and work to make it happen. Again, we've been talking about plunder, private equities plan to pillage America. The author, who you've been listening to, Brendan Ballou. Brendan, thanks so much for writing this book. Thanks so much for joining us at Reader's Corner. Thank you so much. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.